and welcome to this episode of Finding the Glitter in the Golds, a J.R.R. Tolkien and Middle Earth chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And today we are going to be discussing J.R.R. Tolkien's life. So I don't have to put a disclaimer about getting facts wrong from Middle Earth. (laughs) (laughs) But not just J.R.R. Tolkien's life, as like well-documented as that is. I think if you've been listening to back episodes, you know how many letters he wrote and how many we've saved. (laughs) We have a lot of primary source material on the dude, but um, no, we're also going to be talking about C.S. Lewis, who was a friend of Tolkien's. They had a lot of... um, I I researched this episode, and I found that Tolkien and Lewis both had a lot of weird overlaps in their life, Uh, not just because they were friends and influenced each other's writings and taught at the same college and stuff, but they had a lot of very interesting convergences and divergences in their life experiences that I thought would be cool to talk about. And also it's just kind of fun to, I don't know, learn about the biographies of these two guys who I I grew up reading C.S. Lewis, actually. I remember being so not a fan of C.S. Lewis. Like in middle school or elementary school, one of the fifth graders was super into Narnia and I started reading it and I was like, but y'all haven't read Lord of the Rings? (laughs) Excuse me, this is crap. And everyone was like, Lord of the Rings is a really long trilogy that is kind of highfalutin. You're a nerd. Shut up. (laughs) Oh. And I had no friends. Oh, though. But now we're friends. Now we're friends and we talk about Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and now we can briefly talk about C.S. Lewis. We don't have to talk about Narnia, but I was, for a long time as a kid, I was really into those books where, like, kids go into another world. And that's a whole genre of books out there that are very, very delightful. Edward Eager was one of my favorite authors in the genre. E. Nesbitt uh, did some good stuff with that, too. And now um, Sean and McGuire uh, yes, did some McGuire. that have been fantastic. So if you want to read any other books about kids going into another world that are a little less Jesus-y, those are highly recommended. Even the Treehouse, the Magical Treehouse books. I love Magic Treehouse. They were so good. I mean, it's it's technically like our world, but they were time traveling. Yeah. Similar ideas. Similar ideas, totally. Yeah, so that genre of kids going to other worlds was really cool. And I loved that so much. And so C.S. Lewis was right up my alley and um, cried pretty hard in some of those books, got some feelings, never got the Christian allegory because I was not raised religious. Oh, I totally was. That's probably why I didn't like it. Yeah, it's really heavy handed in retrospect. God, I just remember reading about the one female character who like stopped going to Narnia because she got super into lipstick. And I was in like fourth or fifth book and I was so offended by it that I did not finish the series. Authors have taken that shamey story about Susan and really put a good spin on it, which is very lovely. Like they'll talk about her and her life after that. And I love it. Ooh, I would like to read that. I'll dig some up. Yeah. I think um, Neil Gaiman wrote one that was published and then I found a few on Tumblr that have been great. (laughs) Anything by Neil Gaiman I will read. Hell yeah. Hands down. But so uh, you're going to hear a lot of me talking in this one as I go through the biographies of J.R.R. Tolkien and his overlap with C.S. Lewis. And it doesn't necessarily overlap at the very beginning or anything like that. But um, I thought it'd be good to kind of bounce back and forth from like their childhoods and when they were both in World War One, mm-hmm. and then their years at college and then World War Two and how they reacted to that and post uh, World War Two. 
So we're going to get the whole story there. Yay! Let's do it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, all of this is from Wikipedia. <laughs> Our teachers from college would be so disappointed right now. I know, but I got to say, it is kind of the best resource for getting a lot of different sources on these. And clearly, because C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien are so well-beloved, it's going to be pretty extensive. Oh, yeah. The one for C.S. Lewis is a little um, poetic for my tastes, so <laughs> I will be paraphrasing. <laughs> Whoever wrote that one was uh, had like a huge boner for the guy. Awesome. Um, but yeah, let's just jump right into it. John Ronald Rayul Tolkien was born first in 1892, and uh, the very beginning of his entry on Wikipedia describes him as an English writer, a poet, philologist, and academic. And then Clive Staples Lewis was born 1898, and he was a British writer and lay theologian, which as a term I think really clarified his writing for me. Yeah, because he's not like, that's not what his background or like college degree is in, but you can still be a theologian. For the fun of it, yes. <laughs> Amateur theologian, pro-am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And kind of some of the stuff that uh, C.S. Lewis is known for is uh, the screw tape letters, which I've never read, but I started reading because I was very curious. And it's a, a demon writing to his nephew about how to tempt humans. Whoa. It's such a cool idea. It reminds me a little bit of Good Omens. Yeah. Uh, and then he also wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and some nonfiction Christian apologetics, uh, which I will talk about a little bit later, including Mere Christianity. They have very different styles, which we can talk about a little bit after I get through the biographies. Because, uh, yeah, they definitely were different writers. Uh, yeah. And, that's very interesting to see when people criticize each other's work when they have very different ways of going about it. Yes. So John Ronald Rayl Tolkien was born in the Orange Free State, which is now the Free State province in South Africa, to an English bank manager and his wife. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien had one sibling, his younger brother, Hilary Arthur Rayl Tolkien, who was born in 1894. Um, as a child, Tolkien was bitten by a large baboon spider in the garden, which uh, some think was reflected in his stories later, but he did not admit to knowing about the event and he didn't have any special hatred of spiders as an adult. Uh, he went to England with his mother and his brother when he was three years old on what was supposed to be a lengthy family visit, but his father died in South Africa of rheumatic fever before he could join them. So Tolkien's mother took him to live with her parents in Birmingham. And then in 1896, they moved to Sarehole, which is now called Hall Green, and then a Worcestershire, Worcestershire village. Um, <laughs> these names are hard. I, I hate having to pronounce names sometimes. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to avoid as many name dropping as I can just to not embarrass myself. But he enjoyed exploring all of these areas, which inspired scenes from his books. Um, he would write about, you know, all the different towns and villages. And there was actually a place, uh, his Aunt Jane's farm was called Bag End. What? <laughs> you know that. That's awesome. Yeah, so like his childhood really influenced the imagery that he liked to bring into his books. Mabel Tolkien, his mother, taught her two children at home. And he was called Ronald in the family. Tolkien liked to draw landscapes and trees when he was younger, but he also, of course, 
loved languages and his mother started teaching him Latin very early in his life. He could read by the time he was four and his mother allowed him to read pretty much any books he wanted. He read the fairy books of Andrew Lang, which were very influential in uh, his writings. And then Mabel Tolkien was received into the Roman Catholic Church in 1900, despite the protests of her family, who were Baptists, and they stopped giving her any financial assistance. And so um, in 1904, when Tolkien was 12, his mother died of acute diabetes at Fern College in Rednall, where she was renting. She was about 34, which is about as old as a person with diabetes could live without treatment because they didn't have insulin. Um, it wasn't discovered until two decades later. Nine years after her death, Tolkien wrote, my own dear mother was a martyr indeed, and it is not to everybody that God grants so easy a way to his great gifts as he did to Hillary and myself, giving us a mother who killed herself with labor and trouble to ensure us keeping the faith. So you kind of see here how faith was very integral to his life, and his mother was kind of a bit of a faith rebel with her family, but very strongly instilled in him and his brother the importance of being Roman Catholic, which he remained his whole life. Yes. Before her death, uh, Mabel Tolkien assigned her sons to be raised by her friend, who was Father Francis Xavier Morgan of the Birmingham Oratory, and she wanted them brought up good Catholics. <laughs> Tolkien described Father Francis as, quote, he was an upper-class Welsh Spaniard Tory and seemed to some just a pottering old gossip. He was, and he was not. <laughs> Funny. So, weird little note about Father Francis there. Seems like a good dude, though. Relatively good dude. A little bit controlling, uh, as we'll see a little bit later. And then Tolkien went to school. He went to a bunch of schools. God, these kids skip like, around in terms of schools <laughs> a lot. While he was in his early teens, Tolkien first encountered a constructed language, which was invented by his cousins Mary and Marjorie Insuldon. And this was animalic, which I mentioned last time. At the time, Tolkien was studying Latin and Anglo-Saxon. And then as Animalic kind of, I don't know, kids lost interest in it, uh, Mary and others, including Tolkien himself, invented a new and more complex language called Nevbosh. And then the next constructed language that he would work with, Nafarin, was his own creation. In 1911, Tolkien went on a summer holiday to Switzerland, which he recalled vividly in a letter from 1968, which was much later, uh, noting that Bilbo's journey across the Misty Mountains, including the glissade down the slithering stones into the pine woods, is directly based on his adventures as their party of 12 hiked from Interlaken to Lauterbrunnen and on to camp in the moraines beyond Murren. 57 years later, Tolkien remembered his regret at leaving the view of the eternal snows of Jungfrau and Silverhorn, the silver teen Celebdil of my dreams. Do you know what that means? Um, well, the Silverhorn, I believe, was a name of one of the mountain peaks in mm. that they had to cross over. Celebdil is the Sindarin name of Kuzdul uh, Zeregzgil, which translates as the mountain silver teen. So it's um, above Casa Doom, uh, south of Kralheras. So it is, so Celebdil is the elvish name for one of the mountain peaks in the Lonely Mountains. It's kind of cool how much imagery Tolkien kept from all these little bits of his childhood here. Like from the bag end stuff with his Aunt Jane to these mountain peaks from a trip in Switzerland in like 1911. 
Isn't that what we all make stories out of, though, is our own experiences? For sure. It's just the, I don't know, this is so early to be holding on to these memories. It's, it's just very impressive to me. I guess it's not that surprising. I've definitely written stuff that I pulled from my childhood impressions of something on. It seems almost pure sometimes. Like it's not weighed down with like me also secretly thinking about what I'm going to eat next or like how I'm going to pay for this trip or anything. It's just these moments of like very much experiencing what's right there. In the moment. Yeah. In October of the same year that he took that trip in 1911, he began studying at Exeter College, Oxford, and he initially studied classics but changed his course in 1913 to English language and literature and graduated in 1915 with first class honors. We're going to skip over to Lewis now. So Clive Staples Lewis was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1898. His father was a solicitor, and his mother was the daughter of a Church of Ireland priest and great-granddaughter of both Bishop Hugh Hamilton and John Staples. So heavy religious stuff on his mother's side. He's Irish. Yeah. That goes with the... the you, you pick a religion there, especially in Belfast. Yeah. Northern Ireland. Lewis had an elder brother, Warren Hamilton Lewis, known as Warney which is adorable. Nicknames kind of ran in the family though, because when C.S. Lewis's dog, Jaxi, was killed by a car, the four-year-old Lewis adopted the name Jaxi and would answer to no other name. Later, he accepted Jack, which was uh, what he was known to friends and family as for the rest of his life. That's dedication to a dog. Seriously. Uh, when he was seven, his family moved into Little Leah, the family home of his childhood in the Stranton town area of East Belfast. And as a child, he was fascinated with anthropomorphic animals. He fell in love with Beatrix Potter's stories, which I read as a kid. Yep. And uh, Lewis often wrote and illustrated his own little animal stories. And he and his brother, Warney, created the world of Boxen, which was inhabited and run by animals. Sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little animals that can talk in Narnia. Yeah. Lewis was schooled by private tutors until he was nine when his mother died in 1908 from cancer. His father then sent him to live and study at Winnard School in Watford, Hertfordshire. God, these goddamn names. Lewis then attended Campbell College in the east of Belfast, about a mile from his home, but he left after a few months because he had respiratory problems. I kind of want to do a little bit of research at some point just for my own edification about how bad the air quality was around these times because I feel like there were so many respiratory problems. Well, you were burning coal. Yeah. So he had the the respiratory problems and went to a health resort town of Malvern, Worcestershire. You just added like five syllables to that. I'm giving up on the Worcestershire. Like a horse. It was during this time when he was at the health resort town that he abandoned his childhood Christian faith and became an atheist. He was more interested in mythology and the occult at this time. And in September 1913, he enrolled at Malvern College. And after leaving Malvern, he studied privately with William T. Kirkpatrick, his father's old tutor and former headmaster of Lurgan College. So as a teenager, he was really interested in the songs and legends of what he called Northernness, which is the ancient literature of Scandinavia preserved in Icelandic sagas. Sounds familiar if we've been talking about Tolkien. Indeed. He also learned to love nature. Uh, Its beauty reminded him of the stories of the North, and the stories of the North reminded him of the beauties of nature. 
again, this is where the person who wrote this Wikipedia article really just wanted to flex their writing chops. Right, but it's not that great. It's not that great. <laughs> I feel brutal about that one. His teenage writings moved away from telling stories about boxing and the animals that could talk there, and he started using different art forms like epic poetry and opera to try and capture his interest in Norse mythology and nature. And also studying with Kirkpatrick instilled a love of Greek literature and mythology and honed his debate skills and his reasoning skills. And in 1916, he was awarded a scholarship at University College Oxford. But within months of entering Oxford, the British Army shipped into France to fight in the First World War. But we're going to skip back to Tolkien and talk about his relationship with Edith. Edith! So he met her when he was 16 and she was 19, um, when he and his brother Hillary moved into a boarding house where she lived. So Edith and Tolkien would go to Birmingham tea shops, especially one which had a balcony, and they would throw sugar lumps into the hats of people who passed by. (laughs) And during the summer of 1909, they decided that they were in love. But... Tolkien's guardian, Father Morgan, saw Edith as kind of the reason that Tolkien had fucked up his exams and considered it altogether unfortunate that his surrogate son was romantically involved with an older and Protestant woman. So Tisk tisk. Exactly. So he prohibited them from meeting, talking to, or even corresponding until Tolkien was 21. And Tolkien obeyed this prohibition to the letter. I mean, he tested it once, but then Father Morgan threatened to cut his university court career short if he did not stop talking to Edith. That's five years. Yeah, it was a long time. So on the eve of his 21st birthday, Tolkien wrote to Edith, who was living with a family friend in Cheltenham, and he declared that he had never ceased to love her and asked her to marry him. Edith replied that she had already accepted the proposal of George Field, the brother of one of her closest school friends, but Edith said she had only agreed to marry Field because she felt on the shelf and had begun to doubt that Tolkien still cared for her. She explained that because of Tolkien's letter, everything had changed. The romantic in me is going squee. (laughs) Letters. Tolkien, right from the very beginning, is like, letters are important. Yeah. So on January, in January of 1913, Tolkien traveled by train to Cheltenham and was met by Edith on the platform. They took a walk in the countryside, sat under a railway viaduct, and talked. And by the end of the day, Edith had agreed to accept Tolkien's proposal of marriage. She wrote to Field to return to the ring. Field was pretty pissed off, and the family was insulted and angry. And when people learned about her new plans, the the woman that she was living with said, I have nothing to say against Tolkien. He is a cultured gentleman, but his prospects are poor in the extreme. And when he will be in a position to marry, I cannot imagine. Had he adopted a profession, it would have been different. Following their engagement, though, Edith announced that she was converting to Catholicism at Tolkien's insistence, which pissed people off and she had to move out of the place where she was living. But they were formally engaged at Birmingham in January 1913 and married at St. Mary Immaculate Roman Catholic Church uh, in March of 1916, which was two years after Britain had entered the First World War. Tolkien's relatives were shocked when he decided not to immediately volunteer for the British Army. And he explained this period of his life to his son, Michael, in 1941 
which is where a lot of this information comes from. And it's kind of cute. He wrote his son so many letters about his life. And instead, Tolkien delayed his enlistment until he had completed his degree. And by the time he passed his finals in 1915, he recalled that the hints were becoming outspoken from relatives. He was commissioned as a temporary second lieutenant in the Lancashire Fusiliers in 1915 and trained with the 13th Reserve Battalion for 11 months. And he kept writing out to his wife, Edith, um, and complained, gentlemen are rare among the superiors and even human beings rare indeed. So not a great war experience for Tolkien. It's, war is so dehumanizing. Yeah. And he was never... Like he he wrote so much about the connection between people and the friendships. Yeah. Of course he's not going to like war. <laughs> he was sent to France in the summer of 1916 and was informed that he had been assigned as a signals officer to the 11th Service Battalion, the Lancashire Fusiliers, which was part of the 74th Brigade, 25th Division. I don't know anything about military. Me neither. And I don't care, so we're going to move on. While waiting to be summoned to his unit, Tolkien sank into boredom and composed a poem called The Lonely Isle, which was inspired by his feelings during the sea crossing to Calais. Uh, To evade the postal censorship that the British Army had, he also developed a code of dots so that Edith could track where he was on like a big map. He was commanding enlisted men who were drawn mainly from the mining, milling, and weaving towns of Lancashire when he was uh, in France here. And he later lamented, the most improper job of any man is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. Oh, he was posted near Amiens, which is a city near Paris, north of Paris, that a bunch of my friends went to circus school in. Oh, cool. I wondered if you'd know some of these places in France. There's a big one right here. Um, Tolkien arrived at the Somme in early July of 1916. You know where the Somme is? J'ai aucune idée. I have okay. no idea. It's a big deal because. Uh, uh, so the Somme is actually a river in um, north central France. Mm. It's part of a region, uh, what they were called, un département, part of the Haut de France region. Because Lewis was stationed there later, which I'll talk about in a second. But he arrived at the Somme in 1916, and in October of that year, as his battalion attacked Regina Trench, Tolkien contracted trench fever, a disease which was carried by the lice, and he was sent back to England in November. Many of his dearest school friends were actually killed in this war, and Tolkien's battalion was almost completely wiped out after he had returned to England. He might have been killed himself, but he had had so many health problems and removed from combat multiple times. He was pretty adamant that his works didn't talk about the Second World War. He was quoted as saying, one has indeed personally to come under the shadow of war to feel fully its oppression. But as the years go by, it seems now often forgotten that to be caught in youth by 1914 was no less hideous an experience than to be involved in 1939 and the following years. By 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. Oh, that just, it's like a knife in the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the World War I was pretty brutal to him in his close circle. Trench warfare was just so apoplectic. Yeah. 
he was um, deemed medically unfit for general service for the remainder of the war and spent a lot of time alternating between hospitals and garrison duties. During his recovery uh, in a cottage in Little Haywood, Staffordshire, Tolkien began work on what he called the Book of Lost Tales, beginning with the fall of Gondolin, which was his attempt to create a mythology for England. So he kept being sick throughout 1917 and 1918, but he'd recovered enough to do home service at various camps. And at this time, Edith had their first child, John Francis Rail Tolkien. Uh, in a 1941 letter, Tolkien described his son John as conceived and carried during the starvation year of 1917 and the great U-boat campaign. So very tied to the war was that kid. He was promoted to the temporary rank of lieutenant in 1918 while he was stationed at Kingston-upon-Hull. And at that time, he and Edith went walking in the woods at nearby Roos, and Edith began to dance for him in a clearing among the flowering hemlock. And he remembers, uh, quote, I never called Edith Luthien, but she was the source of the story that in time became the chief part of the Silmarillion. It was first conceived in a small woodland glade filled with hemlocks at Roos in Yorkshire, where I was for a brief time in command of an outpost of the Humber garrison in 1917, and she was able to live with me for a while. In those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance. But the story has gone crooked, and I am left, and I cannot plead before the inexorable Mandos. Because he was writing this after his wife's death. Oh, but this whole incident of her dancing in the hemlocks inspired the meeting of Baron and Luthien, as you've been reminding me throughout these whole series. In uh, November of 1920, Tolkien was demobilized and he left the army, retaining his rank of lieutenant. And his first civilian job after World War I was at the Oxford English Dictionary, where he worked on the history and etymology of words of Germanic origin, beginning with the letter W, as we've talked about. W, 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 woo! <laughs> In 1920, he took up a post as a reader in English language at the University of Leeds, and he was the youngest professor there. And he also produced a Middle English vocabulary and a definitive edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with E.B. Gordon while he was at Leeds. In 1925, he returned to Oxford as Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon with a fellowship at Pembroke College. In mid-1919, he was starting to tutor undergraduates privately, um, particularly at women's colleges, where he was allowed to teach because he was married. <laughs> so being a bachelor or tutor would have been unseemly. But during his time at Pembroke College, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and the first two volumes of The Lord of the Rings while living in North Oxford. In the 1920s, as we've talked about, he undertook a translation of Beowulf, which was finished in 1926, but wasn't published until 2014. The Tolkiens had four children, John Francis Rayo Tolkien, who was born in 1917 and who died in 2003, Michael Hillary Rayo Tolkien, who was born in 1920 and died in 1984, Christopher John Rayo Tolkien, who we've mentioned a lot, and he was born in 1924 and died this year in 2020, and then Priscilla Marianne Rayo Tolkien, who was born in 1929 and still survives as of this podcast recording. So we can skip back to Lewis at this point, as Tolkien has entered his military career and then his academic career and had all these kids. So Lewis entered Oxford in 1917, and he joined the officer's training corps at the university 
as his most promising route into the army. There was, again, that really, um, you hear about it in the Tolkien story, but it, the fact that you had to serve in the army at this time, like it was heavy social pressure to do it. He was drafted into a cadet battalion for training. And after his training, Lewis was commissioned into the third battalion of the Somerset Light Infantry of the British Army as a second lieutenant. On his 19th birthday, the 29th of November, 1917, he arrived at the front line in the Somme Valley in France, where he experienced trench warfare for the first time. This was after Tolkien had been sent home from the Somme for getting infected by the lice, but they both were there and experienced the trench warfare at the Somme. In 1918, Lewis was wounded and two of his colleagues were killed by a British shell falling short of its target. Some great friendly fire there. He suffered from depression and homesickness during his convalescence, and upon his recovery in October, he was assigned to duty in Andover, England, and he was demobilized in December 1918 and restarted his studies at Oxford. In one of his letters, Lewis cited that his experience of the horror of war, along with the loss of his mother and his unhappiness in school, were the bases of his pessimism and his atheism. After Lewis returned to Oxford University, he received a first in honor moderations, which was Greek and Latin literature in 1920, a first in greats, which was philosophy and ancient history in 1922, and a first in English in 1923. In 1924, he became a philosophy tutor at University College, which seems like a redundant name for a college. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's just a sign of prestige. I'm both a university and a college. <laughs> Um, and then in 1925, uh, Lewis was elected as a fellow and tutor in English literature at Magdalen College, where he served for 29 years until 1954. During his army training, Lewis shared a room with another cadet who was named Patty Moore. They were both Irish. And the two made a pact that if, e if either of them died during the war, the survivor would take care of both of their families. Patty was killed in action in 1918, and Lewis... Uh, had met his mother, Jane Kingmore, and a, a friendship quickly sprang up between Lewis, who was 18 when they first met, and Jane, who was 45. The friendship was particularly important to Lewis while he was recovering from his wounds in the hospital because his father didn't visit him. His mother was dead and his father did not visit him while he was recovering. So as part of his promise to Patty Moore, Lewis lived with and cared for Moore until she was hospitalized in the late 1940s. So he spent most of his adult life uh, caring for this woman and the rest of her family as well. He routine routinely introduced her as his mother, referred to her as such in letters, and developed a very affectionate relationship with her. There was some speculation on their relationship uh, when a person named A.N. Wilson wrote a biography of Lewis. Um, he had never met Lewis, and he attempted to make a case for their having been lovers. For a time, which had been brought up before. There was a biography by George Sayre, who had known Lewis for 29 years, and he kind of touched on this in his biography, uh, Jack, A Life of C.S. Lewis. He wrote, quote, were they lovers? Owen Barfield, who knew Jack well in the 1920s, once said that he thought the likelihood was 50-50. Although she was 26 years older than Jack, she was still a handsome woman, and he was certainly infatuated with her. But it seems very odd if they were lovers that he would call her mother. We know, too, that they did not share the same bedroom. It seems most likely that he was bound to her by the promise he had given to Patty, and that his promise was reinforced by his love for her as his second mother. So, 
some speculations there. Spent most of his life with an older woman taking care of her. He spoke well of her throughout his life. He said to his friend, George Sayre, she was generous and taught me to be generous too. And um, in 1930, he moved with his brother, Warney, Mrs. Moore, and her daughter, Maureen, into a house called the Kilns, which was in the outskirts of Oxford. And they all contributed to the purchase of the house, um, which kind of passed through the line of people as they passed away. Uh, and I think still resides with Maureen as Warren died in 1973. Jane Moore suffered from dementia in her later years and she had to be moved into a nursing home where she died in 1951. And Lewis visited her every day in this home until her death. To kind of skip back to his atheism, because that changes. It changes a lot. It changes hard. Um, it's like a hardcore U-turn in the opposite direction. Exactly. But he had a very strong argument for his atheism that was based on a quote from Lucretius. Uh, let's see if I can still read the Latin. Nequequam nobis divinitas esse paratem, naturam rerum, tanta stat predita culpa, which he translated as had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. A more literal translation, which was uh, done by William Ellery Leonards, reads that in no wise the nature of all things for us was fashioned by a power divine, so great the faults it stands encumbered with. It's a very, very different translation. His is a little less, it's a little more specific. Um, the second one is a little more open-ended. Yeah. I mean, Latin's hard to translate. Like, the ideas that have survived were mostly really, really complexly rendered. Hmm. Like, you can tell just from how weird that sentence structure was. It's a totally... Yeah. I was going to say, is that because of the, the structure of the language itself? Yeah. They had very complicated structures. Gotcha. I took Latin for quite a while in high school and college, so aggressively forgot all of that because it's very hard to hang on to. <laughs> well, and then you studied ancient Greek too, right? Yeah, that one, that one messed me up as well. That was very cool though. Good times. Um, but yeah, it, despite all of this uh, atheism and poetry and shit, Lewis did eventually return to Christianity, uh, influenced by arguments with his Oxford colleague and Christian friend, J.R.R. Tolkien who he met for the first time in May of 1926. Lewis vigorously resisted conversion, noting that he was brought into Christianity, quote, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. <laughs> God, sounds like oh. a cat about to be slaughtered. Oh God, yeah. He described his last kind of like struggle against religion in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, quote, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. To me, that says that he's like, oh, I don't want to convert because I don't really want to believe it. But I've heard so many good arguments that I should believe it. But a part of me doesn't really believe it, which kind of seems to me to be the opposite of what faith should be. But I mean, that was his first kind of step into conversion. And he embraced it 
very fully uh, throughout his, the rest of his life. It's surprising that he converted in the first place with that description. I know. It sounds so much like he's been forced into it, but it was kind of a forcing of his own mind changing. And he really didn't want to change his mind, but he kind of had to because I don't know. He just heard so many good arguments for it. Mm-hmm. After his conversion to theism in 1929, he converted to Christianity in 1931 after he'd had a long discussion uh, late at night on a walk with his friends, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. And he became a member of the Church of England, which was disappointing to Tolkien, who had hoped he would join the Roman Catholic Church. Lewis was a committed Anglican who held a pretty orthodox view of Anglican theology, though his apologetic writings, he tried to avoid... um, pushing one denomination of Christianity. Regardless, he considered himself an entirely Orthodox Anglican to the end of his life and reflected that he had initially attended church only to receive communion and then had been repelled by the hymns and the poor quality of the sermons. But he later came to consider himself honored by worshiping with men of faith who came in shabby clothes and work boots and who sang all the verses to all the hymns. After the outbreak of the Second World War in 1938, the Lewises, Warren and C.S. Lewis, took child evacuees from London and other cities into the kilns with Maureen and Jane Moore. So you can see this in Narnia when the kids are sent out of London during the Blitz of the Second World War and sent yep. to the countryside. Uh, so he was kind of the older man figure in that book, uh, mm-hmm. taking these kids in. Lewis was only 40 when the war started, and he tried to re-enter military service, offering to instruct cadets, but he was not, uh, he was rejected, and they instead suggested writing columns for the Ministry of Information for the press, but he didn't want to write lies to deceive the enemy, so he instead served on the local home guard in Oxford, and then from 1941 into 1943, he spoke on religious broadcast programs by the BBC, Um, So like radio broadcasts from London while the city was under periodic air raids. These broadcasts were very much appreciated by civilians and servicemen. They have examples of people talking about how much they loved it, like Air Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hartman. No, that's not his name. Air Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He is a hard man. Yeah. Uh, Sir Hardman wrote, quote, the war, the whole of life everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. All of his broadcasts were put into an anthology, which was Mere Christianity, which is um, one of his works. But in general, it appears that Tolkien didn't think very much about Lewis's efforts to write popular theology. He seems to believe that theology should be left to to the professionals. And popularizations were either like risking people misrepresenting Christian truths or leaving people with an incomplete picture of those truths, which would in turn do more to encourage heresy than orthodoxy. So uh, actually a lot of uh, Lewis's friends really didn't like the broadcasting that he did or his apologetics and the stuff that he wrote about Christianity. John Beverslius writes, quote, the broadcast talks prompted some of Lewis's closest friends to make embarrassed apologies for him. Charles Williams ruefully observed that when he realized how many crucial issues Lewis had sidestepped, he lost interest in the talks. Tolkien also confessed that he was not entirely enthusiastic about them and that he thought Lewis was attracting more attention than the contents of the talks warranted or than was good for him. I also really appreciated the the description by Tolkien of Lewis's writing as stiff and creaky jointed. (laughs) 
unoriginal and that Lewis was a very impressionable man. Oh, God. This is kind of a, a good moment to talk about their different writing styles, I yeah. think. And not by writing styles as in the way that they, like the, the text itself, it was the way that they wrote. Yes. Um, so at this time, Lewis was just cranking out books. So he was way more prolific. And Tolkien was agonizing over The Hobbit for 17 years, but T Lewis turned out all seven volumes of the Narnia series in seven years. And that doesn't include the several works of Christian apologetics, which he also wrote at the same time. Yeah, I guess Tolkien wrote in one of his journals that he thought that Lewis was just rushing everything. Yeah, and... Lewis had complaints about the fact that Tolkien couldn't take criticism. He called him a niggler and perfectionist who was never keen to accept advice. Lewis also wrote his standard of self-criticism was high and the mere suggestion of publication usually set him upon a revision in the course of which so many new ideas occurred to him that where his friends had hoped for a final text of the old one, the old draft, they often got the first draft of a new version. <laughs> yeah. They they clashed over the way to write. <laughs> hmm. There's probably some jealousy at play there, too. But anyway, in 1945, Tolkien moved to Merton College, Oxford, and became the professor of English language and literature there, uh, in which post he remained until his retirement in 1959. During the Second World War, Lewis was a little bit more entrenched in what was happening there. He had kids staying at his place, and then he was doing these kind of lectures uh, for the BBC. And on the other side of it, Tolkien uh, had been earmarked as a code breaker for this. A record of his training was found, which includes the notation Keen next to his name. But Tolkien scholar Anders Stenstrom suggests that, quote, in all likelihood, this is not a record of Tolkien's interest, but a note about how to pronounce the name. <laughs> He was informed in October that his services weren't required, though, so he didn't do code-breaking for World War II. That would have been cool. That would have been so cool, though. Yeah. He was a little too old and sickly, and, like, he could not do military service. In 1945, Tolkien moved to Merton College, Oxford, and became the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature there, uh, where he remained until his retirement in 1959. And he also completed The Lord of the Rings in 1948, close to a decade after the first sketches. And he also translated the Book of Jonah for the Jerusalem Bible, which was published in 1966. So that's what he did kind of around the war times there. Mm -hmm. Let's skip on back to Lewis here um, for the kind of final chapters of Lewis's life. He corresponded with a woman named Joy Davidman Gresham, who was an American writer of Jewish background. She was a former communist and she had converted from atheism to Christianity. She was separated from her alcoholic and abusive husband, uh, the novelist William J. Gresham, and she came to England with her sons, David and Douglas. And Lewis first thought that she was a agree agreeable intellectual companion and very good friend and agreed to enter into a civil marriage contract with her so that she could continue to live in the UK. It took place in 1956 when Lewis was 58, which was you know, the first time he'd been married and the first time he had been romantically connected with someone who he did not call mother. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she had passed away by this time. I want to point out um, Jane Moore had died by then. 
So they were civil married and Lewis's brother Warren saw the relationship, uh, quote, for Jack, the attraction was at first undoubtedly intellectual. Joy was the only woman whom he had met who had a brain that matched his own in suppleness, in width of interest and an analytic grasp, and above all in humor and a sense of fun. Joy complained about a painful hip and was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer, unfortunately, but the, during this time, their relationship progressed to the point where they wanted to have a Christian marriage. Since she was divorced, this was not straightforward in the Church of England at the time, but a friend of the family, um, the Reverend Peter Bide, performed the ceremony at her bed in the Churchill Hospital in 1957. Grisham's cancer went into remission for a while, and so uh, Joy and C.S. Lewis lived together as a family with C.S. Lewis's brother, Warren, uh, still part of that until 1960 when her cancer returned and she died in July of that year. And earlier in that year, the couple had taken a brief holiday to Greece and the Aegean. And this was his only crossing of the English Channel after 1918. So this was the first time he'd been anywhere across the English Channel since the war. After her death, Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed, which describes his experiences of bereavement in such a raw and personal fashion that he originally released it under the pseudonym N.W. Clerk to keep readers from associating it with him. Ironically, many of his friends recommended the book to Lewis as a method for dealing with his own grief because they didn't know he'd written it. He's like, y'all, I did deal with it, and then I published that book. Thanks. I mean, I don't know that he dealt with it, but he certainly published a book about it. He got a little bit out. That probably he got it out, yeah. And after his death, uh, the authorship was made public by Fabers with permission of the executors. So people didn't know he'd written until after he had died. Ah. Too tender. He was too tender. He didn't want people to know. Little delicate soul of a flower. Yes. I'm a tree dude. Uh, C.S. Lewis continued to raise Gresham's two sons after her death. Um, and they are still alive, both of them. So Douglas Gresham is a Christian, like Lewis and his mother. And David Gresham turned to uh, Judaism with his oh, beliefs. Wow. Yeah. In a 2005 interview, Douglas Gresham acknowledged that he and his brother were not close, but they do have email contact with each other. And Douglas remains involved in the affairs of Lewis's estate. So stayed pretty tied to that family. So um, it might be this relationship between Lewis and Joy that separated Lewis from his friends, including Tolkien at this time. The fact that she was divorced was kind of a big deal to them, especially if they were very Catholic. So Lewis had spent most of his time in the company of other men who shared his interests, and they were members of an informal Oxford group of writers and teachers known as the Inklings. Yeah, I actually did some research on that. It started in the late 20s, and it started as a group um, including Tolkien and Lewis, who would go and meet at a pub and talk about um, like Norse and Icelandic sagas. Um, and they called themselves the Kolibaters or coal biters because they would like sit really close around the fire and like almost burn their toes. Not um, good for your lungs, bad for your lungs, as we've established. Right. They would, you know, they'd be sitting around in this like smoking and drinking some beer and being total bards and saying like Beowulf out loud and all these like sagas out loud and then I guess Lewis was the first one to say hey what if we read our own writing and so they started reading installments of their own work and then that morphed from being the coal biters to being the inklings and they would come and gather every Tuesday um, at the eagle and the child which is like a 17th century pub 
and they would share like a chapter and get, try and seek advice. And I guess the banner of the eagle and child is this eagle flying with a child in its talons, which may have influenced um, Tolkien's image of the, of the eagle taking Frodo out of the fires of Mount Doom. Oh, that's so cool. They also would meet at a pub called the White Horse, which resembled the Prancing Pony quite a bit. Ah, perfect. Yeah, but this was a point where Tolkien and Lewis were kind of apart, and Lewis was spending more time with his wife and his family and stuff, and less time with all of these guys that had grown to see him as a staple, because he was in his late 50s at this point, so he probably had a pretty solid routine down. In early summer of 1961, Lewis started suffering from nephritis, which resulted in blood poisoning, and his illness caused him to miss the autumn turn at Cambridge. Uh, his health started improving in 1962, and he returned that April. And according to his friend, George Sayre, Lewis was fully himself by, the, uh, by early 1963. But in July of that year, he fell ill and was admitted to the hospital, and he suffered a heart attack at 5 o'clock p.m. on July 16th and lapsed into a coma. He unexpectedly woke up from that at 2 p.m. the next day and was discharged from the hospital. And he returned to the kilns where he was living with his brother and uh, adopted stepsons. But he was still too ill to work. And then he resigned from Cambridge in August and his health continued to decline. He was diagnosed with end-stage kidney failure in mid-November and he collapsed in his bedroom at 5.30 p.m. on the 22nd of November in 1963, exactly one week before his 65th birthday. And he died a few minutes later. Media coverage of his death was almost completely overshadowed by news of the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, which occurred the same day, approximately 55 minutes after Lewis had collapsed. And this is also when the English writer Adelis Huxley died, who uh, was the author of Brave New Worlds. What's a bad day! This coincidence of three major figures dying on one day was the inspiration for Peter Kreeft's book, Between Heaven and Hell, a dialogue somewhere beyond death with John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Adelis Huxley. I am buying this book. Wait a minute. That sounds terribly awesome. I know. It's such a good idea. Like, I didn't know that this is such a confluence of things. No, but like, I really want to see what Kennedy, Lewis, and Huxley would say to each other. I know, right? So anyway, C.S. Lewis is buried in the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church, Headington, Oxford, and his brother Warren died in 1973 and is buried in the same grave. Tolkien would survive C.S. Lewis by another decade. Tolkien retired in 1959 and received more and more public attention kind of from his retirement all the way up to his death, and he was gaining and gaining more and more literary fame. In 1961, C.S. Lewis nominated him for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, the sales of his books were so profitable that he regretted that he had not chosen an early retirement. At first, he wrote enthusiastic answers to readers' inquiries, but he started becoming more and more unhappy about the sudden popularity of his books with the 1960s counterculture movement. So the kind of people writing to him were hippies. Hippies! And he, was not, he did not know how to respond to that. <laughs> I'm just picturing this like man sitting there with his overcoat smoking a pipe and being like, I am very British. And then like some dreaded out hippie. Hey dude, can I have a smoke? <laughs> you want a smoke of mine? Here, let's trade, man. And then I see, you know, Tolkien just like taking a joint and being like, what the fuck is this? It's just a roll of paper. Where is the artistry of the pipe? 
Well, I mean, he would know what a hand-rolled cigarette was. This is England. But he always has a pipe. In every single photo I have ever seen of him, he only has a pipe in his mouth. Get him a pipe. Get him a bong. See what's up. Ah, wait. We could give him some of Abby's bongs. See what happens. That'd be weird. He's really old and British and, like, very painfully so. I cannot imagine him bonging it up. Whatever. In a 1972 letter, Tolkien actually deplored having become a cult figure and admitted that, quote, even the nose of a very modest idol cannot remain entirely untickled by the sweet smell of incense. (laughs) Because of all this fan attention, Tolkien had to take his phone number out of the public directory, and eventually he and Edith moved to Bournemouth, which was then a seaside resort uh, for the upper middle class British person. His status as a best-selling author gave him easy entry into polite society. It made, I mean, Tolkien really missed the Inklings and his society there, but Edith was apparently ecstatic to get to be like a society lady. And that is actually why he'd selected Bournemouth in the first place. According to Humphrey Carpenter, those friends who knew Ronald and Edith Tolkien over the years never doubted that there was deep affection between them. It was visible in the small things, the almost absurd degree to which each worried about the other's health and the care in which they chose and wrapped each other's birthday presents. And in the large matters, the way in which Ronald willingly abandoned such a large part of his life in retirement to give Edith the last years in Bournemouth that he felt she deserved, and the degree in which she showed pride in his fame as an author. A principal source of happiness to them was their shared love of their family. This bound them together until the end of their lives, and it was perhaps the strongest force in the marriage. They delighted to discuss and mull over every detail of the lives of their children, and later, their grandchildren. Edith Tolkien died on the 29th of November, 1971, at the age of 82. According to Simon Tolkien, her grandson, quote, My grandmother died two years before my grandfather, and he came back to live in Oxford. Merton College gave him rooms just off the high street. I went there frequently, and he'd take me to lunch at the Eastgate Hotel. Those lunches were rather wonderful for a 12-year-old boy spending time with his grandfather, but sometimes he seemed sad. There was one visit where he told me how much he missed my grandmother. It must have been very strange for him being alone after they'd been married for more than 50 years. No. It's a a sad one. She's been forever commemorated as Luthien. That's true. Tolkien had the name Luthien engraved on Edith's tombstone at Wolvercote Cemetery in Oxford, and when Tolkien died 21 months later on the 2nd of September, 1973, from a bleeding ulcer and chest infection at the age of 81, he was buried in the same grave with Baron added to his name. Just for kind of a reference on his wealth, I guess, um, Tolkien's will was proven on December 20th, 1973, with his estate valued at 190,577 pounds, which is the equivalent of 2 million pounds in uh, 2019 doodle's rich dooder is rich Uh to skip back to the relationship with c.s lewis and tolkien um and i thought this would be a good jumping off point to kind of talk about the ways that they influenced each other we've already mentioned a few times but i'm sure there's a few more ways that they talked about books and talked about philosophy and religion uh, that we could still say something about. And this is kind of a nice one. Shortly before C.S. Lewis died, he wrote to Tolkien, quote, all my philosophy of history hangs upon a sentence of your own. Deeds were done which were not wholly in vain. That reminds me a lot of, we referenced the speech so much, but Sam's speech at the end of the two towers when he's saying, you know, when Frodo's like, what is it? What are we fighting for, Sam? And Sam says that there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. 
it's a kind of a similar sentiment of there is some good and it's not in vain to do the good. Exactly. And that's such a philosophy that, again, Tolkien had, um, where doing the right thing is more important than the outcome. Yes. Um, one thing I found a little bit interesting is, um, I guess, Tolkien and Lewis would write to each other a lot. And it was it, Lewis wrote, if they won't write the kind of books we want to read, we shall have to write them ourselves, in which Tolkien apparently agreed to try time travel, and Lewis decided to write space travel. And I was, I started laughing when I read this. I mean, for one thing, like some of those concepts as genres with fantasy and sci-fi weren't really as solidified then as they are now. So they were kind of out in the wilds with that on their own. But also Tolkien never wrote time travel. Not in like the ideas that we would think of it. (laughs) I suppose, yeah. It's funny to me to think about those genres being so connected because they still are today. There's like sci-fi fantasy is mashed together so much, but they feel so distinct for me. But I guess they're both dealing with concepts about philosophy and humanity removed from us and placed into a world that does not exist. It's always, I've always thought of them as almost ways to look at philosophical concepts or ideas of what the future would be like without there being, like being able to toggle around the pieces and ask what if without actually affecting anything. Yeah. Or like, I just finished a trilogy that is fantasy. It's set in a high fantasy world with magic and everything. But then the third book is like, and suddenly there's two kinds of time travel that represent different philosophical choices and the meaning of choice. So suddenly we became a mix of everything. It was really cool, but definitely the the mishmash. Yeah. The mashup part of it is, I think, hard to do well or hard to do clearly because they've become so distinct recently but I like thinking of them being super connected and these authors writing or I don't know pledging to write who knows where those stories ever ended up um, about these specific concepts of time travel and space travel. Well Lewis did write a book about space travel out of the silent planet um, and it was about a man who comes back to earth from Mars and uh, his character, Dr. Ransom, is a philologist, and he more than likely based that character on Tolkien. I also find it interesting that Ransom celebrated pub life, which in pub life played such a big role in both of their lives. When Ransom returns to Earth from Mars, he immediately seeks out a pub and revels in the familiarity and companionship of the pub atmosphere. You get a sense of that in... Tolkien's books too, where there's pubs and there's songs and there's this kind of air of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And Tolkien has so many books where it's about men loving each other very much and tenderly. Which is what he had with the Inklings. Exactly. He had this with C.S. Lewis and he had it with his fellow Inklings. Mm-hmm. Tolkien said that Narnia was outside the range of my sympathy as much of my work is outside of his. Which is interesting that they were such good friends, but obviously wrote such different ideas and styles and they both they seem to kind of accept that about each other it seems like they didn't like each other's work very much no four years after lewis's death tolkien wrote he never really liked hobbits much (laughs) but they did they did help support each other's books even if they weren't a fan of the other's writings and they had a lot of conflict around that So like Tolkien helped Lewis find a publisher for Out of the Silent Planet because it was harder to find 
publishers for little sci-fi stories like that at the time. And Lewis wrote a review in the Times calling Loder a book like lightning from a clear sky. Um, and he wrote to Tolkien after the book's publishing that he hoped it would inaugurate a new age and conquest new territory in, in writing. And I mean, it did. It did. It really did. Both of theirs really did. Yeah, they both really, I don't know, brought a lot of attention to the fantasy genre. And I feel like Lewis's work is more accessible for the average kid. Yeah. But I mean, the average kid is such a <laughs> such a broad statement. I mean, you clearly loved Tolkien so much more. So any age can enjoy that kind of stuff. Yeah, they were both able to find a really strong audience for their work. And it's still super relevant right now. Mm-hmm coming out with all the movies about these kind of things too. I mean, the Chronicles of Narnia ones kind of slid into obscurity over time, but they all came out around the same time and they went on pretty strong. Amazon is going to make a series of The Lord of the Rings, apparently. I'm not excited about that. No, but just to say that it's still being recreated. Why? I mean, yeah, I get it. There's always new ways to retell. We've talked about this. There's always new ways to retell and find something to say about it, but Peter Jackson did such a good job. Let's just stop there. It, it gave honor. It honored the majesty that is the Lord of the Rings. It never needs to be redone in film. I am very curious now about the things that did dishonor to the Lord of the Rings because there were some renditions of this and The Hobbit that were weird as fuck. Yeah, the, like the cartoon. Yeah. Version. Bad. Oh my god, yeah. The way that they portrayed elves in that one is super frog-like, and I kind of love it because I want elves to be less humanoid and less, like, sexy. But they're perfect. But perfect by what standards? By our standards, obviously. Yeah, I guess. Beauty in the eye of the beholder and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. This has been our episode on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and we really went off on this. Uh, yeah, that was that was an hour and a half of us discussing their lives, and like the the overlaps between their lives are so fascinating. Yeah, how many kids with you know not necessarily the best or most affluent backgrounds both end up liking Irish, uh, Icelandic, and Norse sagas that end up in Oxford, who then have a book group together. And religion plays such a big part in what they do and friendship and their experiences in war, good and bad, mostly good. bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there was a lot that they were experiencing, but they came out of it with some very different works, but works that still feel connected in some way. Yeah. It's a beautiful friendship that they had, even if it kind of fell apart at the end there for things. Anyway. Thank you all for listening to us on Finding the Glitter and the Golds. We are available on a whole lot of podcasting apps. For ease, you can look us up on anchor.fm slash finding dash the dash glitter. But we are also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. Wherever you find us, it would be great if you could like us, rate us, write us a review, subscribe, all that jazz. Share us with your friends if you think they'd find it interesting. And I believe that is all. We will talk to you again next week. You on the Shire side. Bye.